0: All right, it's time to talk about sexual uh, orientation. This is a very uh, emotional topic. It's a very divisive topic. And so I'm um, just going to kind of encourage everybody to just back up from the ledge just a little bit because there's so much tension and angst around this. I am not God. I'm not going to tell you you know what to believe. Um, I'm going to share with you uh, some Things that I've learned over the past five months where it seems almost obsessively that I have thought and prayed and read and discussed and talked about this topic just so much that it's completely worn me out. I've talked about this so much with my wife, Krista, just obsessively that a few weeks ago she just got frustrated with me, and just screamed. She was standing in the hallway, and she said, you, you shut up. You know, talking about this, this is the only thing you talk to me about. I think you're becoming gay. So, <laughs> not something that you hear, at least, I don't hear my wife say that to me often. I think that's the first time. So this is, a, okay. It's a, anyway, uh, let's just stop and pray and ask God to be with us and to give us wisdom and understanding. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your love and your compassion. We are requesting your presence would be with us in just an exceptional way today, and that you would help us to understand what your word is saying, and that our attitudes would be, as Jesus, you tell us they should be uh, just like yours. You would give us your mind and your attitude about this topic today. In Christ's name, amen. There are six passages in the Bible that deal directly with homosexuality. And uh, there are Bible scholars that are, you know, divided. Now there's some gap in between, but if you want to look at it as two polarizing viewpoints, um, they take it in two different ways. But Just about all the Bible scholars, doesn't matter if they're over here or they're over here, all will admit that every one of the six passages is viewed in a negative light. Now where you go from there, um, who knows? But at least that's, that's a starting point to realize. And when I go through five of them today, uh, the sixth one, which we're not even going to get into because we just don't have time, is found in First Timothy chapter 1. We left a lot of room on the back of your uh, bulletin. If you want to take some notes, you can. So Genesis 19, I'm not going to read the story, i simply tell you briefly the story of what happens in Genesis 19. That's the one that so many people think of when we think about homosexuality, we think about uh, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think about what happened in Genesis chapter 19, where what you have is actually two angels who go to visit a Lot, and they go to his home, and then there was a, a large band of men that show up outside the door, and they're banging on the door, and they say, you know, basically, they want to you know, bring them out. We're going to have sex with, with these guys. And so it's an attempted now it's an attempted because it never went through. What, what actually happened in the midst of that is Lot says the men,, you know, don't do this, I'll send my two daughters out instead, and you can have your way with them, which is completely bizarre. But this is what he says. The angels step in and blind everybody outside, and you know the whole crisis is averted. But God destroys the city. So people say, well, he destroyed the city because you know the city was filled with gay people. Well, um, there's a big difference between an attempted gang rape and being gay. I mean, we should be able to recognize that pretty readily. And this was an attempted one. Ezekiel 16, we talked about this chapter a few weeks ago, which talks about God's divorce of Israel. Right. Well, at the end of the chapter, in verses 49 and 50, it talks about Sodom. And this is what it says the sin of Sodom was. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And so there's... Obviously, clear conflict in the Bible. That if you want to say, well, this is Sodom was all about being gay. Well, Ezekiel 16 says, no, it's, it's there's, there's more to this issue. All right? If we had bands of people who were running around gang raping people. Uh, that would be a direct connection. But being gay is is not the direct connection here. And what Ezekiel was talking about is in a culture of hospitality, how they had just ruthless inhospitality and were you know, mistreating. So, so that's kind of what happens there. Now, there are two other passages in the Old Testament, both of them found in the book of Leviticus, just a couple of chapters apart from each other. And it's involving something called the holiness code. Um, was, so here's the, the second passage in the Old it's Leviticus 18.22. It says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. And the second passage of that is Leviticus 20, verse 13. It says, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, here's what's in the holiness code. You find in the holiness code uh, incest, child sacrifice, bestiality, fortune tellers. Don't go to fortune tellers. You find information about what you should eat, so there's food laws there, there's clothing laws, there's circumcision, and there's mold. There's mold, that if you get mold in your house, that you should tear your house down. Let me tell you about my first day in seminary. My first day in seminary, first day, first class, first 15 minutes of class, the professor uh, said, Uh, okay, this is going to be an open class and we want to respect everybody and everybody's viewpoints and feelings. And then we launched, she launched into a discussion about being gay. And she got quite animated and and said, you know, if you think homosexuality is a sin, then what I'm going to need for you to do is to go home right now and tear your house down. I want you to tear your house down because I guarantee you have mold in your house and Holiness Code says homosexuality is a sin, so that means you have to tear your house down because your house has mold in it. There was a show on a few years ago called West Wing. Obviously, it's about the White House. And in this show, the president, um, Martin Sheen played the president. Now, there was a, There's a clip that I saw in kind of getting ready for this whole thing where there was somebody on the show that plays a role, I think, of a radio personality or something like that and this person had said that you know, homosexuality is a sin and, and, and the president here, Martin Sheen playing the president, invokes this whole idea of the holiness code basically saying this is kinda of the same thing my professor was saying okay, um, you have gotta throw it all out because who's tearing their house down because there's mold. It is true that the Old Testament does not make any distinction when it comes to ritual laws, moral laws, purity laws and dietary laws. There's not a distinction there. Now, I don't want to oversimplify the matter, but um, what we could do is we could take a look at the Old Testament and see what's talked about there, and then go into the New Testament and say, well, what's upheld in the New Testament? Because clearly, dietary laws are not upheld in, in the New Testament, and neither is circumcision and a number of other things. But are the moral laws as it pertains to sexuality upheld when we get into the New Testament. So here we go. Let's, let's take a look at, does, is there, do, they, do they uphold them? Is there some kind of overlap here? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians um, so much here. And so here's chapter 6. This is, this is what it has to say about this issue. Starting in verse number seven, the very fact, you have this on your blue bulletins, by the way, or it's behind me, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? How you like this line? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What do you to do with that? I mean, we start out by talking about lawsuits and then the, then the encouragement to be cheated and wronged rather than to have a lawsuit, and then all of a sudden we get this line here about this, this smattering of things that are sins, and then you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So what does that say? Who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God? The people who, who do these things, and what stands out, particularly in all our culture because of all the angst around this is, is the line that says, men who have sex with men. But what about idolaters? Is it possible that Americans idolize anything? uh, How about uh, adulterers? Uh, Jesus with the, you know, if any man looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery. Uh, That's a problem, okay? Uh, Thieves, greedy? Are you serious? Greedy? You mean to tell me that none of us have a streak of greed in us anywhere? Americans, I mean, is that, you know, then, then it says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. So, so if this is about salvation, if this is about salvation, then what Paul has done is he spent four chapters leading into 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4, hammering away, hammering, and hammering away that your behavior is not what sanctifies you. He says the gospel sanctifies you. It's about the behavior of Jesus, and it's not about my behavior. So now if he's saying this, about salvation, then he's defeated his oral argument that he just spent four chapters hammering away at us on. So that doesn't make sense either. So I thought maybe what would be good is rather than me sharing you what I think about this, that we'd go ahead to somebody who really knows what they're talking about. So if you're a Christian, you know the name Dr. Charles Stanley, right? You have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Dr. Charles Stanley. (laughs) Oh, I just went on YouTube and just did the, you know... Dr. Charles Stanley Homosexuality, and he speaks directly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he was answering a question from a mother whose son had written her a letter, and the son said, Mom, I'm a Christian, and I'm gay. Okay, And so the mom is writing Dr. Stanley saying, hey, what's going to happen? Is he saved? Is he going to heaven? I've got to know. What's the deal with this? And so here's what Dr. Charles Stanley said. He said, yes, he's saved. Right, because we're saved by the gospel, not by our behavior. And the inheriting the kingdom simply means this, that God's best, which is totally lines up with what you read in 1 Corinthians. You, you can you know, do what you want, but is it beneficial? Is it the best? So he's not going to experience all of what God wants for him. But is he saved? Yes, he is saved, because we're not saved by our behaviors. We are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to talk some about the gospel, and for those of you who are here for the first time, you can go on our website. We did a three-part series in September called It's Complicated, in which we just talked for three weeks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is primary. This is not secondary. This is the most important thing. That uh, To even have this discussion, and the reason we started out this way is because this is the way the Bible starts out. You have to understand the gospel before you have these very difficult discussions. You have to thoroughly, thoroughly understand it. And so it, I would encourage you to go and listen to those three sermons that were all about the gospel. I am saved and I grow spiritually, not because of what I stop doing. No, if I stop doing all those things, but I am saved and I grow spiritually because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's the gospel. I exchange my unrighteousness for his righteousness. That's the gospel. Oh, We're gonna now focus, and remember there's six passages, so we're covering five of them. We're gonna spend most of our time right now from here on out in Romans chapter one. And here's the reason why we're gonna spend all of our time on Romans one. Because the book of Romans is vital to us. The Bible is not a book of theology. There are volumes of books written on theology, but the Bible is not a systematic theology help us to put a system in place for our thinking and our understanding about God. But the book of Romans is the closest thing we have to some type of systematic understanding of who God is. And there's a theology of sin that's here that we're going to look in Romans chapter one that is vitally so that the most of the meat of understanding and discussion starts, I think think most people would agree with that, scholars on this, in Romans chapter one. And that's why we're going to spend most of our time here rather than in first. Corinthians, I'm going to talk about three things here. Priority, power, and purpose of the gospel as it pertains to sexual orientation. Priority, power, and purpose of the gospel. All right, Romans 1, starting in verse number 16, Paul writing to the church at Rome, writing to Christians in Rome, who obviously as you read this you will get the understanding that they were upset and frustrated with people who were living lives that they felt were much more sinful than them and that Paul should do something about it. So Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. I want to stop right there. Why in the world would Paul say, I am not ashamed? The only reason that he would say that he's not ashamed is if for some reason people were saying, Shame on you. If he felt that people, you know, that he should feel some shame for preaching the gospel and focusing on the gospel. Now, priority is what I want to talk about here. Paul's priority when it came to his preaching and to his interpretation of the scripture was all about the priority of the gospel and they wanted him to reprioritize what he was talking about. And so he felt that shame and so the first thing he says, the theme of the whole book of Romans is about the gospel, the first thing he says is, I'm not ashamed of it. I just need you to know that the gospel is my priority. I am not ashamed of it. And they're like, we want you to talk about these other things which I'm getting ready to mention in just a few moments. These are the things we want you to talk about. He says, I'm not going to shift my focus. I'm going to focus on the gospel of jesus christ now i want to show you something here on this whiteboard um you know that for a number of weeks a few weeks back as we were beginning the series we talked about this study that was done and i told you about 91 percent i told you about this number and that represents People, a study was done for people ages sixteen to twenty-nine who don't go to church, who live in the United States of America, and they were asked the question, what is the Christian church all about? Could you just tell us in a nutshell? And ninety-one percent said the Christian church is all about being anti-gay. And I and I I told you that I don't receive any phone calls for the last ten years. I don't receive phone calls people saying, Hey, I'm I'm interested in coming to your church. Could you tell me what you believe about Jesus? The Bible, the gospel. Nobody calls me about that. Everybody calls me, they all have exactly one question. And they all go and say, We want to know where you stand on homosexuality. And then we will so 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 people are determining where they go to church based off of this issue of homosexuality. Now, I've already said that there are nine verses that deal with this. There are thirty-one thousand verses. There's more than that, but Let's just talk in round numbers, okay? There's 31,000 verses in the Bible. Nine of them uh, deal with homosexuality. I asked somebody who claims to be really good at math, although that's suspect, but uh, I'm going to go with the number that he gave me, okay? And he said it's 0.03%. That's how much the Bible talks about it. All right, 91%. Say, yep, we know what the church is all about. It's all about being against people who are gay. And the Bible talks about it 0.03%. That is three verses out of every 10,000 verses. Three out of every 10,000 verses are about the issue of homosexuality, and yet it is the determining factor. It is the defining point of the American Christian church. Churches and denominations are melting down. When I talk to my friends who are in different denominations from time to time, they'll say, Hey, pray for me and pray for my church and pray for my denomination. Why? What's wrong? What's going on? We're imploding. Why are you imploding? Homosexuality. If you read the Bible out loud, it would take you about 70 plus hours to read it. When you came to the parts about homosexuality, you would cover it in a little more than 60 seconds. What's the priority? You know, if I don't know anything, and I landed from Mars, and somebody handed me a Bible, I would say this is not a huge priority to God. But what I would conclude is is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is a huge priority. That that's what everything is focused from Old Testament to New is focused on Jesus Christ. It's an issue of priority. Where are our priorities? The gospel, not homosexuality, is the biblical priority. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he is going to be rewarded. We have lived imperfect lives, and we're headed towards punishment. Jesus is offering us in exchange, our punishment for his reward, our unrighteousness for his righteousness, priority. The second point is this. That's the priority. The gospel is the priority. Homosexuality has become the priority. We're completely out of whack. If you love Jesus and you love the Bible, that number, all those numbers there, should do something to you. They should do something to you. Power is the second one. Where's power come from? Well, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? What's the gospel? It's power. It's power. It's the power of God for salvation, for everyone who Believes Where does power come from to make me, John, an unholy, unrighteous, and perfect person, right with God? Where does the power come from to make me perfect and holy and righteous and just before God? Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says it's not about my behavior, that my behavior does not save me. Jesus' behavior saves me. That's what the gospel says. My behavior does not save me. This is basic Christian theology. I I, I know it's not seldom talked about. My behavior does not save me. Jesus' behavior, 100%, Jesus' behavior saves me. As a pastor, I would say probably the thing that I long for more than anything else is, to use an old-time churchy word, is revival. Spiritual awakening. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Right? I read many years ago that people who go to church all the time and people who have never been to church before, they were asked, okay, for those who have never been to church, if you did, why would you go? And people who here go all the time, why are you going? And they all came up with the same top answer. We want to have an encounter with God. We want to meet God. We want to experience God. That's what a revival is. What brings a tidal wave of the presence of God? What brings that? We, we think for some reason that cleaning people's behaviors up, either my cleaning my behavior up or me telling somebody else they gotta clean their behavior up is going to bring the tidal wave of God's presence. When what we have is in biblical history and in church history, we have the opposite. In the book of Acts, the greatest revival ever seen, when the world got turned upside down, when the whole Roman Empire was turned around, persecuting Christians to now it becomes, which was a bad thing, but became a Christian state, okay? How did that happen? How did that move happen? where people said they felt the presence of God in such a powerful way, where the Apostle Paul encounters God's presence in such a mighty, powerful way. Did it happen because people were cleaning up their behavior? No, it happened because people were focused on the gospel because that's where all the power is. The Great Reformation of Martin Luther, The fact that he was trying to clean up his behavior was actually pushing him farther and farther away from an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's when he focused on the book of Romans of all things and the gospel of Jesus Christ that that's when the tidal wave of the Holy Spirit fell. The great spiritual awakening of the 1700s. It's the same thing again. And we think that, oh man, if, if, if we can just get this country cleaned up and get people back living moral behavioral lives or whatever, that somehow... God is going to fall on us when the biblical witness goes counter to that. So Jesus deals with the Pharisees, right? And they're just living these lives, and and they're trying to get everybody else to live these good lives. And who's the only group of people? Jesus only got mad at two different groups of people. This should wake us up. I know some of us throughout this series, oh man, why are we being so hard on the church people? I'm not being hard on the church people, Jesus is. And so he says to those Pharisees, Matthew 23, boy, it's so strong, the seven woes. You, by living your lives, are trying to get everybody else to live the way you're living. You're making people twice the sons of hell as you are. What is he saying? behavioral modification is not the focus. Does that mean that we should just do anything we want? No. Well, where's the power? The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in my behavior, but in his behavior. That is what it is all about. And that is where the power comes from. All right, last one is this, purpose. What is the purpose of the gospel? The purpose of the gospel is to make clear to us that we are all in the same sinking ship. Together, I want to read you Romans. This is going to be long, okay? But it's so good. I really want you to listen. Just listen deeply. And if you don't listen deeply, you'll just well, your mind will just fly off. But if you really just feel and understand and think about what Paul is saying here, it is brilliant. Romans one eighteen. I'm going to read all the way through chapter two, verse number five. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For this invisible, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give or as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. That's the first time it said there'll be two more. Therefore, God gave them up. In the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, second time, covetousness people wanting stuff that's not theirs malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit maliciousness they're gossips not that anybody has a problem with that slanderers haters of god insolent haughty what does haughty mean haughty means to think hey i've got all the answers i've got this thing figured out there's nothing else i can learn boastful Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I love that one. Foolish, faithless, heartless. Heartless means to act unloving towards somebody, just in case anybody here has ever acted unloving or rude to somebody. Ruthless means to act without mercy. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve desire, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now here we go. (laughs) Look what happens here. Romans 2 5. Everybody pretty much agrees on this. Bible scholars, that Paul has been uh, baiting them, whipping them up into a frenzy, and now he's got them. And he says, Therefore, you have no excuse. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about all these bad people. How did I get lumped into this? Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Wait a minute, he lumped me again. I'm not practicing all that, but he's saying I am. What does that mean? We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, not knowing what? that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We should all memorize that verse. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Wait a minute. I was all whipped up about other people experiencing wrath because they were living ways that I was totally sure was completely an abomination for God, and I'm happy to see them experience that wrath, and now all of a sudden he's telling me I'm having wrath. This is not good. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're in a community group here, um, your leader has an article that has probably already been forwarded to you, if not, will be shortly, by Richard Hayes. And it's about I, it's the best article I've read that is a commentary on Romans chapter one. I highly, highly encourage it. If you're not in a community group and you don't have access that article there's a bible study sheet in your blue bulletin at the end of it the bottom of it it gives you an email address email brian parker and you email him he's going to email it back to you but if you really want to get your hands on it right now we have a few copies on the little desk just as you walk out the door back there but i encourage you if you're in a community group just get the one the community group because we're going to run out back there it's excellent i strongly strongly encourage you to uh to get that all right what comes first everybody the sickness or the symptom This is very important. What comes first, the sickness or the symptom? You go to the doctor, you say, Hey, doc, um, I got fever, I got chills, I got congestion, I got a headache, I am aches and pains all over. Does the doctor look at you and say, Prepare yourself, you're about ready to get sick. (laughs) Is that how it happens? You go, what if you went, not me, but uh, a woman went to a doctor and said, You know, I've... I've got these strong cravings. All of a sudden, I'm getting sick every single morning. Does the doctor say, hey, look, you should prepare yourself. You're going to get pregnant. (laughs) What happens first? I mean, do do you get the sickness or the symptoms first? Paul is acting like a doctor here, and he's diagnosing a situation. He's saying, you know what? The world is is broken. God's wrath has already been revealed, and now all these symptoms are full. So all this whole 22 things that I just read right there, they're all symptoms that the world has already been... The world's not going to be broken. The world's not going to be sick and then have wrath. The world is already, past tense, under wrath, and we see all these symptoms that are following that. i want to go through a couple things with you. So uh, think about this. Verse number 19. Who is it that Paul is talking to originally here? He says in verse number 19, he says, God was plain to them. You see that? For what can be known about God is plain to them. How many people would say, yeah, God is totally plain to me? I'm like, when it comes to God, I have no confusion. There's no mystery with God. Even the Apostle Paul, everybody, says this is a mystery. I'm looking through a glass darkly. I don't have God figured out. Look, if Paul doesn't have it figured out, I'm doubting anybody here has it figured out. So who is he talking to? Who is it that God is so plain to That's one clue. Second one, verse 20. Says, For the invisible attributes of God, namely his internal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So God, clearly seen, clearly perceived, everything's plain, nothing is a mystery. Verse 21. The people that he's talking to here knew God. The word know here means to have a relationship with. They had This weren't people who didn't have a relationship with God and were confused about God and... I don't have it, I can't figure this out, I can't figure the Bible I can't figure it out. No, 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 these are people who clearly saw God, everything was plain to them, nothing was a mystery about God. Who fits that bill? Well, you could make an argument for a number of people along the way, but I think your best argument is going to be two people named Adam and Eve living in the garden who walked with a God every day and everything was plain and clear and God was visible and there they were happy together and everything was in perfection. This is very important. Then it goes on to say they exchanged all that. They exchanged the truth for a lie. And when they exchanged the truth for a lie, we're told three different times that God gave them up. It says in verse 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up. What does that mean, God gave them up? God says, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. You want to go this way. It's like the prodigal son, right? The story of the prodigal son. The son says, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. Can you just give me my money so I can go out and do whatever I want to do? And the dad says, I'm not going to stop you. Go and do it. You have chosen this way. I'm not going to try to demand that you sit here and that you serve me. I'm going to give you freedom and you're going to go your own way. Then what happens after that? The story of the prodigal son. All this, right? So the sickness, the breaking happens there when the son leaves. and All the crap comes later, doesn't it? All the horrendous problems. Look, this world is broken. It's already been broken. We think that, okay, people are doing all this stuff. Oh, man, God's wrath is going to fall. No, no, no. We're already under wrath. It's already been broken. This is basic Christian theology. We live in a fallen world, and the things that we read about here are the symptoms that Paul is saying like a doctor. Yep, you have that symptom, you have that symptom. That ought to prove to you that we live in a broken, fallen world. It's not the world in which God is desiring us to live. And so what you see in Romans 2, verses 1 to 5 is a serious attitude adjustment. They're ready to, to launch down on these people. And what does Paul say? He says, you, you need to change your attitude about all of this. Romans 3.9 says this. Listen to this one. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. We are all under the power of sin. Here's the purpose of the gospel is to show us all that we are on one ship and that ship is sinking. We're on one ship. It would appear as if sometimes in the way that it's talked about, it's like there's multiple ships out on this sea and it has different people according to different categories. And, oh, look, there's the gay guys over there and like their ship is like, it's like I can't even see the ship. It's completely sunk because they're committing the ultimate sin. But that's not the way the scripture gives it to us. The scripture says all of this together, we're all in the same ship together and that ship is sinking because we live in a fallen world. I called a friend of mine five months ago when I got started on this whole thing um, because he and his wife have done a tremendous amount of research and even it's part of their jobs to to do this on this whole area of being gay. And so I said, hey, I I really need the two of your help because you've thought so much about this. Can you help me think about this? And what he said to me, he says, John, here's where you got to start with. Can somebody be born gay? I thought, well, wait a minute. I mean, I've always been taught that Jesus created Adam and Eve. He didn't create Adam and Steve, so, right, it's not... But then it made me begin to think. We agree in basic Christian theology that we live in a fallen, broken world. The world's already broken. And I will treat with compassion people who, because of this fallen, broken world, and according to David, who writes in the Psalms, were born into sin. I will have compassion on people who suffer from all kinds of issues going on in this world, physical, mental, emotional, on and on and on, the list goes, all kinds of stuff. But then I carve out this one little category, and I say, but you couldn't be broken that way. You know what the problem is with that, everybody? Everybody. If we say that somebody could not, in a broken world, be born gay, then our theology is completely inconsistent. That is, if you adhere to basic Christian theology, it would be completely inconsistent. I'm gonna say everything else, but not this one area. It couldn't be. And It made me think. And then he said to me, he said, John, I wanna tell you this. He said, and he knows many, many gay people. And they're friends. And he says, you know, when we have talks, and he's just being honest with me, you know what every single one, every one of my friends say to me, I would have never chosen to be this way. Why would I choose this? We have to think about our theology. Do we believe that we're really living in a broken world, as Paul describes to us here in Romans chapter 1? Now, back in July, I did a message um, on Samson. And in that message, I kind of previewed that we would be talking about sexual orientation here in the fall. And after the 9.30 service, I will never forget it, I walked down over here, got over here, and here comes this guy, and he was running to me. And uh, he came up, and he said, I'm from Tennessee. And I knew immediately he was from Tennessee, because his accent was like really strong. And uh, he told me what church he was from. And I kind of began to get the picture when he mentioned the name It was a really long name, to a church, and I figured, oh, okay, he said, I want to talk to you. He said, I won't be here in the fall, but I need to know this. Where do you stand on sexual orientation? He said, now I need to tell you about what church I come from. He said, my church only used the King James Bible. Now, some of you, that means absolutely nothing. But some of you, light bulbs have just gone off all over this room, like, oh, you know. Like, Westboro Baptist probably only used the King James Bible, right? That's, all right, that's so... Not saying anything wrong with the King James Bible, although King James was probably a homosexual, but I just (laughs) that's just historical fact. I'm not just want to say. Okay. So he's like, you know, you're gonna tell me right now, you know, what this is. And so I'm getting ready to answer the question, trying to formulate, I don't know this guy, I could tell he told me where he comes from. I know there's angst, there's probably some venom in there. And I'm getting ready to answer and all of a sudden His whole face changes, and he says, hey, um, I need you to know something first. My brother's gay. It changed everything. All of a sudden, somebody he knew and he loved, and he said, you know, I sit in a church all the time where everybody's telling me my brother's going to hell, and they seem pretty happy about it. Is it possible in a broken world that somebody is born with the same sex attraction? And what if that somebody was you? What if what if that somebody was your child in a broken world, born with the same sex attraction? Could Is it impossible that it could happen to you? Is it impossible that it could happen to your child? Is it possible that it could happen to a close relative of yours or a friend? How would that change that for you? Would you be excited to say you're going to hell? How, Paul seems to me to be really dealing with an attitude that we have. Being gay, everyone, does not determine heaven or hell, and it does not determine our spiritual growth. The gospel does. The gospel does. Now, what is inconceivable to Paul, completely inconceivable, you should pick this up as you, as you read through the New Testament in his writing, it would be completely inconceivable to trust and embrace and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be transformed I mean, it's a foregone conclusion that you are going to be transformed and changed by the power of the Spirit if you really embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then some people say, when I talk about this, kind of angrily, say, well, okay, then how can you say that you're gay? And the comeback is, well, how can you be so rude? If all sin is sin, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, and we're all lumped in there together, how is that possible? Is homosexuality the ultimate sin? No, it's not. Does the Bible say it's one of many symptoms in a broken world? Yes, it does. Yeah. Is it a sin in the Bible? Yes. It is. It is. Now what? Now, what are you going to do about that? We're in a broken world. I'm going to tell you one last story, and I'm going to stop. So we have some friends of ours, okay? And they're a wonderful Christian family. And their child was born intersexual. One out of every 1,500 to 2,000 children in the United States of America are born intersexual. You all know what that means. You're born clearly not male or female. So what happens much of the time is the doctor, along with the parents, make a determination. This child is not clearly a male or a female. We're going to make it a male or a female. The doctor decides with the parents. Sometimes the decision is made. We'll wait to see if this child shows an inclination, an attraction towards one way or the other, and we'll make them opposite. Sometimes that happens. Our friends, wonderful Christian family. The child was born intersexual. Now that child is older and has the same-sex attraction. Does Jesus want me to condemn that child? Does Jesus want me to condone that child? Does Jesus want me to have compassion for that child? Which one? We all need to decide that. Homosexuality, everybody, is not the priority of the Christian church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the priority of the Christian church. It is high time that we stop talking about this so much as if this is God's answer for the world that is in a complete mess. Here's the answer for the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's him, it's his righteousness, not yours, not mine. We're all on the same stinking ship that is sinking. And it's high time that we got a perspective on this thing and we focused on what we're supposed to focus on, not on what we're not supposed to focus on. We should do that with all of our hearts if we love Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. We are imperfect people, and we get it wrong. We get it wrong on all sides of the coin. Father, have mercy on us. Bring healing to us. Guide us out of the mess. And Lord, please, your presence, let your presence fall on us and refresh us and renew us. Let us put priority on where you want us to put priority. And let us be the people you want us to be and are calling us to be. Father, for all those in this room right now who are deeply hurting. They're hurting because things have been said to them or they're hurting because something has been said about somebody who is close to them and it's cut like a knife. Father, would you bring healing in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you bless us and keep us? Would you make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us? And, Father, may you lift up your countenance upon us and grant us your peace both now and forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. And everybody said amen. 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 God bless you for being here. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.